You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, you can make your way to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Chapter 15. And that begins, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, on page 923. I am not talented enough to do this in lyrical hip-hop, but if I were going to begin this morning's sermon the way Hamilton kicked off a cabinet meeting, it might go like this. Ladies and gentlemen, you could have been anywhere in the world this morning, but you're here with us in central Pennsylvania in Acts chapter 15. Are you ready for a council meeting? It's not a cabinet meeting in Acts 15. It's the Jerusalem Council. It's a council meeting. Are you ready for a council meeting? Uh, We have indeed arrived at this watershed moment in the book of Acts, in all the New Testament, really, the Jerusalem Council. And the issue on the table, so to speak, Gentiles, non-Jewish men and women, are entering the church en masse. It's now the late 40s AD. It's about 10 years after the first Gentile convert, this Roman centurion named Cornelius, believed in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. In those 10 years, in that decade since, the uh, many Jewish background Christians in Jerusalem and Judea have been encouraged by the Gentile mission that kicked off with Cornelius. But those Jewish background Christians have been assuming, many of them, that becoming a Christian meant first becoming a Jew. Specifically, taking the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, circumcision, and then keeping a lot of aspects of the law that God gave to Moses. But in Antioch, and in some of these cities where Paul and Barnabas have traveled now on the first missionary journey, that has not been happening. Gentiles are not being required to become Jews first. They're keeping much of their own culture, much of their own heritage and tradition intact. So how will the leaders of the early church, how will the apostles and the elders there in Jerusalem respond? I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's how he refers to Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with, these, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he's quoting here from the prophet Amos. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers and sisters who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men to s- and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, therefore, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers and sisters with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we ask now in these moments that we have together this morning that by the power of your spirit, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our savior. Amen.
Jesus has one church, one church. Uh, As we heard in the words of encouragement this morning, out of the two, out of the many, he has made one new humanity. He breaks down the dividing walls of hostility. The reason that Paul could write those words in Ephesians chapter two is probably because of what he saw play out here between Antioch and Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. If not for the leading of the Holy Spirit, if not for the wisdom and for the sensitivity to the Spirit from Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James and many others that were gathered together, the natural outcome of this moment would have been division. Two separate churches. There would have been the Jewish background church headquartered in Jerusalem, and there would have been the Gentile background church headquartered in Antioch. Instead, through the Jerusalem council, the unity of Jesus' one church is preserved. And it comes through, as we break down this chapter, two simultaneous pursuits. We'll spend the rest of our time looking at these. Defense and deference. So defense, defending the truth of the gospel, and deference, choosing people over preferences, and even at at times choosing community over conscience. So first, defense. Defense. Right from the start, these men who come down from Judea raise the stakes really high. Verse one, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is not a debate about the best way of doing something, about the most faithful way of doing something. Salvation itself is on the line. Who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God? And how does someone enter in? How does someone who's not part of God's people become part of God's people? Some early Christians variously referred to in the New Testament as the circumcision party or the Judaizers. They believe that circumcision and keeping the law are essential. Many of them, as we find out here in these verses, many of them were Pharisees, which is a particular sect within Judaism. As bad a reputation as the Pharisees get from all their interactions with Jesus in the Gospels, many Pharisees became Christians in those early days and early years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Paul himself is a Pharisee. Unlike other Jewish sects, like the Sadducees, for example, Pharisees believed in a resurrection. They believed that God could and would raise people from the dead. So they still had some hurdles, some obstacles to become Christians, but less so than some of their other Jewish counterparts that didn't believe in a resurrection. So many Pharisees start, came to believe in Jesus' resurrection and then saw Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. But the question remained, what about the law? And what about God's covenant with Abraham and that sign of that covenant, which was circumcision? So some of the Pharisees that, that have become Christians in Jerusalem, they kick off this Jerusalem council in verse 5 by saying, essentially, hey, it's great that the Gentiles and so many of them are putting their faith in Jesus because we've done that too. But they need something more than that. They need something else. Though they aren't descendants of Abraham, they need to physically identify with Abraham's family. And in response to this, after there's much debate, four different apostles speak. Peter, 
and then Barnabas and Paul together, and then James. And what they say is incredibly significant. So we're going to look briefly at each of those this morning. Peter goes first. And his argument is essentially, God already made a choice. So who are we to challenge that or question it or test it? And he, of course, is referring there to his time with Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10. If you've been with us in this series, we were there just a few weeks ago. Peter went to Cornelius, proclaimed Jesus, and Cornelius and his household believed. And then immediately, physical, visible manifestations of the Holy Spirit were given to Cornelius' household just as they were given to the apostles at Pentecost. God made no distinction. Cornelius and his family did not have to be circumcised first. They didn't have to commit to keeping the law first. They received the Spirit. Their hearts were cleansed, verse 9, by faith. By faith. Furthermore, Peter says, as good as the law is, we ourselves have been unable to keep it. If that is the way to salvation for anyone, we're in trouble. We cannot bear that burden. So why would we put that burden on other people? We can't do it. Our fathers, our forefathers couldn't do it. Why would we make someone else? We need, just like the Gentiles, an easier yoke. We need a lighter burden which thankfully is exactly what Jesus came to offer. In Matthew chapter 11, come to me, you you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So therefore, Peter concludes, we believe that we, Jewish background Christians, just like Gentiles, will be saved not through the law or the covenant sign of circumcision, but through the grace of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so ends the words and the appearances of the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. It's the last time you'll hear from him or see him in this book. But what a way to go out. What a way to go out. It silences the whole assembly that's gathered there. This man, who was himself reluctant resistant, stubborn to welcome Gentiles into the church. He now rises to their defense and says, God makes no distinction. How could we make a distinction? As the assembly becomes silent, Barnabas and Paul then share about the ongoing work the spirit is doing and has done among the Gentiles. So it's not just Cornelius. It's not just a few uh, one-off instances that have happened in the 10 years or so since. As one commentator put it, the trickle has become a torrent. Gentiles are pouring into Jesus' church. This choice that God made to include Gentiles, God has been piling up confirming evidence in the decade or so since Cornelius. So then in verse 13, James speaks. And this is James the just, as he's sometimes called, the, the brother of Jesus. And at this point, he has now become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So Peter's words matter. Peter was, you know, the first of the 12. He was the leader among them. His words still matter, but it seems here that all eyes are on James. What's James going to say? Because what James says is probably what we're going to end up putting in this letter and sending to Antioch. And what James recognizes is that including Gentiles has always been part of God's plan. It's always been part of God's plan. It has been forgotten many times over the generations of Israel's ancestors, 
It's been hard to see how God was going to include Gentiles at times. But God's mission has always been on track to go through Abraham's family, yes, but beyond Abraham's family to include people from all nations and tongues and tribes of the earth. Of the many texts James could have used here, he quotes from the prophet Amos. God made a promise to King David. He made a covenant with David that one of his descendants would always be on the throne. And God said through Amos that he would rebuild the ruins of David's fallen tent. So David, son Solomon, after Solomon, the kingdom divides and then the northern kingdom goes into exile and then the southern kingdom does. It's like, how is that promise gonna come back together? How is this line of David gonna be rebuilt? And James is saying, God is doing just that through Jesus. Jesus is great David's greater son. He is in that line of David. And so now far beyond the scope of David's kingdom, far beyond what anyone could have imagined, Jesus will reign over all the earth. And not only will the descendants of Abraham come, but as Amos said, and as James quotes here, all the Gentiles called by my name will seek the Lord. So in summary, in summary, God made a choice. We've continued to see the spirit work among the Gentiles, and this is what the prophets have foretold anyway. And so these apostles and elders are concluding, Gentiles like us, like we Jews, they are saved solely through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their hearts, like ours, have been cleansed not by circumcision, not by keeping the law, but by faith. Now, at the end of the day, Paul will go on to to write about this more in his letters. At the end of the day, circumcision itself doesn't really matter. Paul will say, circumcision or uncircumcision, you could do either one. It doesn't really matter until it becomes a litmus test for salvation. The moment that someone makes it a litmus test, then it matters more than anything else. Because now it's about defending the truth of the gospel of grace. There are hills to die on in our faith. Truths that we must be unwilling to yield on. But notice here, the hill is not actually circumcision. The hill is that all people, regardless of age, sex, race, economic status, track record, personality, whatever, people are saved only by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus to cleanse and free them from their sin. That is the only way anyone ever enters the kingdom of God. And this is really important for us to note We can't just take the most conservative approach when it comes to defending the gospel. The Christians who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they're the more conservative ones in this episode. And they're saying essentially, well, maybe just to be safe. We're glad Gentiles are coming in, but maybe just to be safe, let's draw the line back here. Trust in Jesus, yes, but also circumcision and the law. Better safe than sorry. I mean, what kind of harm could come from being a little extra careful and doing more than the bare minimum? All the harm in the world. All the harm in the world. The harm of a false gospel. Any view which claims that salvation is Jesus plus something else is not a gospel at all. It's a false gospel. It's a message that troubles people, which is that refrain that we see in Acts chapter 15. It's a message that enslaves people instead of setting them free. Now, Acts 15 is a unique moment in the history of the church 
But these principles that emerge is still our framework for how we pursue unity today. As Christians of different backgrounds and cultures, whenever we consider questions of unity and diversity about what we believe and what we practice, one of two vital components of our framework has to be defending the gospel. Defending the gospel. Because Jesus has one church. Because Jesus is the one way that anyone can experience God's salvation. Even if you think your motivation is good, it's actually troubling and harmful to add something to the gospel. So let us be diligent to defend the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The second component, the second part of that framework, the second pursuit is deference. Choosing people over preferences. You probably noticed as we were reading Acts 15, but in both James's argument and then in the letter that they ultimately send, the Jerusalem council places four restrictions on the Gentile Christians there in Antioch. No food sacrificed to idols, no food with blood in it, no food that's been strangled, and no sexual immorality. And for centuries, this list has been really confusing to many Christians, myself included. Why these four things? It feels kind of arbitrary. Three of them are about eating. One of them is about sex. Does that mean that all of the other commands, like, like everything else Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, well, all that doesn't really matter, just these four. Or maybe the apostles and the elders are saying, let's just ease them into this a little bit. We've been doing this a little while. There's a lot of commands. We'll just ease them into it. We'll give them a few highlights. We'll put the rest in the small print. You know, maybe Silas was one of those fast-talking guys at the end of a pharmaceutical commercial with like the massive disclaimer. And so they read the letter and then Silas just, you know, speed talks his way through like the other 600 commands they have to keep. No, it's not that at all. This is about deference, about Christians living together in community in spite of our varied backgrounds, our varied cultures. Jesus has one church, which means, yes, we have to defend the truth of the gospel, but it also means we have to die to our preferences. Even more than that, we have to die, or I should say it this way, we have to hold with an open hand certain convictions. Some we hold with a closed hand. Some we hold with an open hand. Some aspects of our conscience and convictions that we have are not essential to salvation. And we can't hold those the same way that we hold the things that are essential to salvation. Or I'll say it this way, because Jesus has one church, there are times to care more about community than your conscience. And there are certainly times to choose the collective body of Christ over personal preference. John Stott describes the four restrictions here in Acts 15 this way. He says, Having established the principle that salvation is by grace alone, it was necessary to appeal to these Gentile believers to respect the consciences of their fellow Jewish believers by, by abstaining from a few practices which might offend them. See, the four things prohibited by the Jerusalem Council are aspects of what we would call the ceremonial law. Ceremonial law, not the moral law. The ceremonial laws were things that had to do a lot with sacrifices, had to do with food, what food was clean and unclean. 
Uh, things that pointed to and ultimately found their fulfillment in Jesus. The moral law, though, though not the way that we would experience salvation, we don't keep the law to earn salvation, but the moral law is still how God calls us to live in response to the salvation he has offered us. It's how to live as people who are truly free. It's how to live and not actually enslave ourselves again. So food is neutral. Food is neutral. In Jesus, all foods are clean. We saw that with Peter as he was preparing to go to Cornelius' house and that sheet that descended from heaven. All foods have been declared clean. But for Jewish background Christians, many of whom are still abiding by and they're welcome to still abide by, some of those laws of Moses, they can't eat meat sacrificed to idols or meat with blood in it or meat that's been strangled. Gentile Christians, they can. They can do those things. In fact, Paul will go on to write later, you have freedom of conscience in this. Eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of where it comes from. Except if it becomes a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Then don't eat it. And in Antioch, at least in this pivotal moment where Jesus' one church is at risk of splintering into factions, that means the Gentiles should abstain from these foods, at least there, at least in Antioch. And you can think about it this way. Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to experience salvation. But at the same time, nor do Jewish background Christians have to start eating like Gentiles. They're free to continue eating the same way that they've eaten for centuries, so long as they're not looking to that for their own salvation. But if they're going to eat together, if they're going to share table fellowship, something has to give. And it should give. It should give. Table fellowship is central to being part of Jesus' one new people. We come each and every week to Jesus' table, and it's one table offered to all who would come, all who would put their faith in his finished work. And we open our homes and we share our tables with one another. That's part of how we live out the oneness of Jesus' church. Since Paul wrote so much of the New Testament and since Paul ate with Gentiles regularly, we take for granted how revolutionary this was. Paul was not a normal Jewish Christian when it came to this. He was exceptional in his willingness and his ability to freely associate with Gentiles. He would be kind of like the one Baptist guy that was totally good hanging out at the bar with the Presbyterians. That's Paul. He was good with that. Made a lot of people uncomfortable, but Paul was good with it. If the church in Antioch is going to avoid segregating their meals and having like the section for Jewish background Christians and then the section for Gentile background Christians, it means the Gentile Christians are going to need to give up some of their freedoms and defer to their Jewish background brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's the food prohibitions. What about the, the prohibition of sexual immorality? In the New Testament, this word, this Greek word, is often used to describe any kind of sexual activity outside of a marriage between a husband and a wife. But whatever your background, whatever your culture Sexual immorality is something that's always prohibited. It's actually part of the moral law. It's not a cultural or a conscience-specific thing. And so if that's what the Jerusalem Council is saying, if that's what they're adding in or meaning, it'd be really odd. Like, why remind people of one moral law 
and not any of the others. Lying, stealing, coveting, murder, green light. You're good to go. On any of those, just no sexual immorality. It's kind of the philosophy that many youth groups in the 90s took as well. Anything's fine, just no sexual immorality. Maybe that wasn't your experience. It was certainly, certainly some of mine. It's not true. I'll just put it that way. Now, it's possible that the council includes this because of the way sexually immoral practices were tied to pagan worship in places like Antioch, um, cult prostitution, things like that. But it's also possible, and this is what I think is happening here, that the Jerusalem council is using the term sexual immorality in a specific way to refer to certain kinds of marriages within degrees of family relationships. So if you go back to Leviticus chapter 18, there were many types of marriages prohibited according to the ceremonial law. Some kind of carried over into the moral law. Some perhaps were not taboo among Gentiles like they would have been taboo among the Jews. And so the Jerusalem council, I believe here, is asking the, the Gentiles there to give up those things that might not be taboo to them, but would be taboo to Jewish brothers and sisters. All of that to say, if Jesus is one church is actually going to live out their faith together, it will only happen through deference. Not simply by the truth of defending the gospel, but by the love of choosing people over preferences, of community over conscience. Both defense and deference are essential. And in this watershed moment of Acts 15, we get to celebrate what John Stott calls a double victory. A double victory of Acts 15. There's a victory of truth in confirming that the gospel is a gospel of grace, not actions or works. It's also a victory of love in preserving the fellowship of one church. When we reach the end of Acts 15, Jesus has one church doctrinally and Jesus has one church experientially. How about today? Today, Jesus still has one church doctrinally. Ephesians chapter four, there's one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Experientially, not so much. Not so much. And I'm sure you're aware of that. We are three massive branches of Jesus' church, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, each with its own tribes and subgroups within it. Protestants in particular, there's something like 40,000 different groups or denominations worldwide. And I think that might just be the Presbyterians. <laughs> I took a shot at the Baptists earlier. I got to take a shot. I mean, I equal opportunity offender. Now, I don't presume we're going to think to fix that today or in our lifetimes or even, I don't think we'll fix that until the day Jesus comes again, to be honest with you. In just this one church, for a little over nine years now, I have found myself utterly incapable of achieving this. I can't keep a congregation of 200 people together. How are we going to ever do that in a region? How are we ever going to do that in a state or a nation, let alone a world? So I actually find some comfort in what happens at the end of Acts 15. This monumental moment in church history where the Jerusalem council welcomes Gentiles and preserves Jesus' one church is followed by what? A division, separation. Now before that, the church in Antioch rejoices. It, it continues to be built up and encouraged. But look again there at verse 36. 
After some days, Paul and Barnabas disagree over whether or not to take John Mark with them on their next journey. And the disagreement is intense enough and it's important enough to each of them that neither one of them defers. So they separate. They go their own way. I'm both discouraged and encouraged by that. I'm discouraged because it seems like such a loss, especially in light of the rest of Acts chapter 15. Like Paul and Barnabas, you guys were just in that room where it happened, where one church across what is perhaps the most difficult dividing line was preserved. And a few days later, you're dividing over traveling companions. But here's where I'm encouraged in this. It means that Paul and Barnabas, just like you, are human beings. Spiritual giants that they are, they are not immune to stubbornness, pettiness, and division. So take heart, men and women. You and I are not uniquely bad at unity. We're not uniquely bad at unity. Two apostles who argued persuasively for unity across one of the hardest lines there was could not remain united with each other. Now, eventually they reconciled. And Paul will go on to speak really highly of John Mark in a letter that he writes later. I'm grateful for that example of reconciliation in scripture. But even more than that, I'm encouraged by the way that God still uses this to advance his mission through his church. One, effectively, one dynamic ministry pair now becomes two dynamic ministry pairs. It's not multiplication. So let's be a little more honest about the words that we use, even though we'd maybe like to use a word that sounds better. This is division. Sometimes it's not a church plant. Sometimes it's a church split. Luke here avoids assigning blame or making any kind of moral judgment. Is is Paul right? Is Barnabas right? He doesn't say. He just describes what happens. But out of this human-driven division comes God-driven mission. And the gospel advances now to both Cyprus and back into Syria and Cilicia, and people meet Jesus, and churches are planted, and churches are strengthened as a result. So next week, instead of passing the peace, we're going to try a time of sharp disagreements and separations. And we'll just see what happens. We'll just leave it in God's hands. No, as Paul goes on to write in Romans 12, he he was here for this, remember. Paul goes on to write in Romans 12, so far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Outdo one another in showing honor. Labor for unity, labor for peace, defer in everything you possibly can. Just recognize God is gonna be at work through and in spite of the divisions as well. As I close, let me just invite you to consider a phrase this week. The the phrase is this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. We're going to talk more about that in our Sermon B-Side podcast this week. But this is a paradigm that I have come to appreciate and pursue in my own life, and it's the way that we as elders of Liberty Church seek to lead here in our own congregation. It's really the same thing we see in Acts chapter 15. It's defense and deference. For things that are essential to salvation, we will die on those hills. We will die on those hills. In non-essentials, though still important, we practice liberty. We encourage everyone here who's part of this church to develop convictions, but also to be ready to lay them aside for the sake of living out 
this life of faith together. And then in all things, charity speaks more to our tone and to our approach. We want to relate to other people as if they really are image bearers of God, as if we really want them to experience the fullness of the salvation and the redemption that is held out to them in Jesus. This phrase and this approach is nothing new. From the earliest years of Jesus' church, this is the path to unity. This is the path to community with men and women, with brothers and sisters in Christ. John Newton speaking about Paul and how Paul lived his life in the New Testament. John Newton once said, Paul was a reed in non-essentials. He was a reed. He would sway in non-essentials, but he was an iron pillar in essentials. So Christian, because you, like anyone else, is saved solely by the grace of our Lord Jesus, may you defend the truth of the gospel. And because Jesus has one church, May you defer on anything that is non-essential and anything that is preferential. Imperfect as it will be, mess of it that we will make by our own disagreements and divisions. May God continue to advance his mission in the world through our pursuit of defense and deference. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, God, our Father. Even that we could call you father. Most of us in this room are not descendants of Abraham, but you have made a way for us to be your people, to be your sons and daughters, to call you father. And so we praise you, father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ, that he broke down the dividing walls of hostility, that he made one new man in place of the two. And so we ask in our pursuit of defense, defending the gospel and deferring to one another, that how we live and the way that we love would increasingly become a worthy response for this great salvation you have offered us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.